but Mark chapter 9, we continue. Uh, It's quite a long chapter. We're going through the whole chapter. And so I'll read the first half now and then the second half uh, halfway through. So let's give our attention to God's wonderfully convicting word. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes were radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And they appeared to them, Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. For they were terrified, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And that as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say this, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. And if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What we just read and what we will read, Lord, what a good gift. I'm so thankful for it. Lord, I pray that you would use your word 
as both medicine to comfort and also the surgeon's scalpel. That we would be cut, things would be cut away from us that are not assets to us, particularly our pride. Lord, open our eyes to your glory and our pride. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, so you remember I told you about the, my Friday lunch experience and uh, how I saw my pride, as I saw the other man's pride, it wouldn't let me merge over. But what about you? Would you consider yourself prideful? You don't have to raise your hand. But here's why. Most people would say no if they're really honest. They say, well, I'm in church, so I probably got to say yes, because <laughs> that's the reality of it. But we, we have like this... Uh, a um, caricature in our mind of like a, an egotistical maniac, right? We're like, well, I'm not like that, right? But what exactly is pride? I mean, it's, we definitely know it when we see other people. We easily apply that label to other people, but it's so hard to apply it to ourselves. As Brandon mentioned, you know, how would we define it? Maybe you could define it this way, an excessively high opinion of oneself or of one's importance. Or more simply put, just the absence of humility, the absence of of humility. Well, here, think about this question. Why is being prideful, uh, would be, let me restate this. It is absurd for humans to be prideful. What do you think of that statement? It is absurd for humans to be prideful. Because here's the reality. If If we had a right view of God, right, and we had a right view of ourselves, no human would ever be prideful. Is that true? If we really saw God for who he is and us for who we are. You see, this is actually two core tenets of Reformed theology. You might not know that. But one of the things about Reformed theology is a very high view of God. Right? We call it the sovereignty of God. God is all powerful. And he's wonderful. And so we, we, in Reformed theology, we lift up God as scripture does, high. But for man, we try to have an accurate view of man. It's pretty low. Right? There's called a theology called total depravity means that when sin entered, it just wreaks havoc. Every part of us, there's no part that is not just wrecked by sin. Okay, so that's what, and so then you have this big dichotomy. And so no man would be prideful. Here's the other trouble with pride. It actually hides itself. You know, many other sins, if you're a drunkard, you know, the more and more you drink, it actually, the problem becomes more obvious, right? But what about pride? The more and more prideful you become, Actually, the less obvious. You are completely blind to it. Interesting, huh? It hides itself. It hides itself. Well, so as I said before, our passage this morning is going to do these two things. My prayer is that by the time we're done, that you would have a little bit higher view of God and a little bit more accurate view of yourself, which is going to require it to go down. That's our goal. Look at page seven for the outline. So first, the glory of of Jesus. Secondly, our unbelief. Third, the humility of Jesus and our pride. And then fourth, the sinfulness of sin. So that first one, the glory of Jesus, we see the transfiguration. But actually before that, verse one was attached to our last passage. You see that where it said, verse one, truly I say to you, there is some standing here to in their lifetime are not gonna taste death before they see the kingdom of God coming with power. What does that mean? What is he talking about? Well, whatever it is, it happened in their lifetime. Many disagree about this, but most likely it's the resurrection and Pentecost, right? Because you get a glimpse of Jesus and his power, and then he comes, the Holy Spirit comes with power at Pentecost. Well, what are we about to have the story right after this, verse 2 and following, is the transfiguration. That is, it's a little bit of the glory, right? 
It's a tiny glimpse of what is to come. So it's kind of foreshadowing that. So that's kind of connection to verse one to what comes after it. But look at what, so you get this, Peter, James, and John, the three guys, right, that are there, get this, it's like a backstage pass, one day only to see the glory of Jesus, a little glimpse of it. Look at two to four again. And after, imagine if you were here, all right, you're six days, Peter, James, and John, hey, you're, you're one of the lucky ones, you get to come, all right? So we're led up to a high mountain by themselves, and he is transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, so that no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, Mark's just trying to put words on it, right? He's like, how do I describe what this scene was like? And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. You know, is this the Jesus you pray to? Radiant and white, like blindingly amazing. I hope so. I hope so. That's who Jesus is really like. He actually is way more, way more amazing than that. But that's just a tiny sneak peek of it. Now, what's this whole uh, Moses and Elijah, right? We, it came up in our first song. Well, so Moses brought the law, and Elijah was one of the prophets. So what you see here is you see the continuation. So the old covenant, you have Moses and Elijah, and then they're now with Jesus. And so you see that continuation. But something else interesting, do you remember that Moses actually met God on a high mountain? Remember? But it was, it, he, did he see God face to face? No. And then Elijah did too on a high mountain. One of the things that's interesting is there's just tons of connections. We'll see this through this, between Moses and things that are happening with Jesus. So here they are. You know the name for that? It's called theophany. Theophany, when someone sees God or appearance of God. So Jesus is like the super theophany, right? He is a man who's visible to him and also he is glorified. So you see this kind of fulfillment that Moses and Elijah, they're back and they're seeing Jesus exalted. And then the apostles are there. I don't know if you've ever had like a spiritual mountaintop experience. Well, Peter, like you probably did, you wanted it to last forever, right? He's like, hey, I'll build you tents. Like he's, he doesn't know what to say. And so he's, hey, well, let's stick around. Look at verse seven. <clears throat> then this cloud comes and then God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I mean, it's probably a lot louder than that, right? What does that remind you of? Does it remind you of Jesus' baptism? Remember then too, we heard a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So the three guys here, I mean, the only guys, the audience is three guys, right? I'm sure they got the application. When, they, when a, a voice from the heaven says, listen to him right after Peter is just rebuke Jesus, like, oh, I got the memo. God wants me to listen to Jesus and not like rebuke him. Listen to him. So then they hike back down and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Until I rise again. They don't really know what that means, but they don't ask. I guarantee they didn't ask because Peter, that didn't go well for him when he objected to this, right? They don't get it. I mean, what's interesting, before we move on, you have the disciples, these three apostles, they just don't get it. They are not tracking, they're struggling to track with Jesus. They do not understand what's going on, right? Like this is the second time and he's gonna say it a third time in a little bit. And we see Jesus held up the glory of Jesus. Then we have this whole thing about um, Elijah, right? He says, they say, well, the scribes said that Elijah is supposed to come. What they're talking about is a prophecy from Malachi. Malachi, last prophet of the Old Testament, it's your last book before you get to Matthew. It says this in four or five, behold, I send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they knew that before the Messiah came, Elijah was gonna come back. 
Do you know who that was? Anyone know? John the Baptist. Jesus makes that connection. He says, he did come. It says there in verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come. So the, what the prophecy of Malachi was not saying Elijah's going to rise from the dead. It's saying someone like him will come. It was John the Baptist. Okay, so that's where we are so far. You see Jesus lifted up and you see guys that just don't get it. All right, let's move on. Now he's going to shift in our second point more to their unbelief. Look at verse 14 and following. Okay, so there's this boy. This is, remember when Moses came down from the mountain? He had that great theophany, comes down, everything's great. He's got the Ten Commandments. And how are the people doing when he gets back, right? They're worshiping an idol, right? Things are not good. So here, Jesus and these guys come back down, and there's this argument between the scribes and his disciples, similar. But why are they arguing? Because uh, he couldn't cast out, the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. There's this interesting verse. What did you think of 19? Was that kind of strange? Let's read that one again. It says, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. It seems like Jesus is annoyed, doesn't it? So you know he's sinless. Okay, so you know it's not like sinful annoyance. But let me paint a picture to help you understand. So Jesus created humanity. How did he create humanity? Perfect, right? So my kids, here kids, look up and look at me. So have you ever made something like with Legos or with blocks and you had a sibling like crush it? Have you had that happen? I see a nod, right? How do you feel? You aren't aren't real happy. I want you to imagine, you know how people make clay pots, right? They take a piece of clay and they mold it and it makes a pot. Imagine someone has a whole room of those they've made and someone breaks in and smashes all of them. You think they'd be sad? Yeah. So Jesus made humanity perfect. And then sin came in and just shattered them. And so Jesus shows up thousands of years later. There have been thousands of years of humanity just being mangled and crushed so that they don't have faith, they don't trust. There's demon possession that can't be cast out because of faithlessness. And Jesus is sad because this is not the way it was supposed to be. So you have to kind of understand the context. This was the appropriate response if you're Jesus who created humanity and here's the scene you've got. You've got a demon-possessed kid and you've got a faith, the apostles who don't have the faith to actually pray to cast out. You see? He's like, how long must I be here? This is not the way it's supposed to be. He was going to make all things new. So just so you can understand the situation. But then he has this conversation with the dad, right? Look how that goes. 23. So he's talking to the dad and the dad says this, look at 23. And Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, no, go back to 22. He says in the middle, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, Teddy cried out, didn't it? I mean, he's desperate. But you know something else? Did you see his humility? I mean, how are you when you're rebuked? How do you respond? Maybe a little indignant, maybe defensive. I mean, Jesus just said to the guy, if I can, and the guy could have just been annoyed and, right? But he humbles himself. He says, no, I acknowledge I have unbelief. But he says, I too believe a little. Help my unbelief. You see, the only way to come to Jesus is humbly. We see his humility. It's a good example. 
if you can, John 6.37 says this, whoever comes to me, this is Jesus talking, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you will come humbly to Jesus, he will never cast you out. No matter how little faith you have, no matter how mangled you are. I love that promise. I love that about Jesus. Well, this man did come. Many don't come because of their pride. But speaking of pride, we're on to our third point. The humility of Jesus and our pride. Okay, so now we've, we've read half the chapter. Now we get the second half of it. All right, look at verse 30 through 50. So open back up your Bible, or some of it's printed, not all of it. So you need your Bible or your phone. And all of it's on page seven. All right, here we go, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And they did not understand the saying, for they were, and they were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Unbelievable. And he, and he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the, him who sent me. Jesus said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because, because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if, it, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, so there's the second half. Let's dig through that. All right, so we see the humility of Jesus in our pride, right? So you look there in verse 30 and following, Jesus again tells them, this doesn't sound familiar. In chapter eight, he did the same thing. You remember that? He laid out, that's why Peter rebuked him, right? He said that he must be rejected and suffered and died and rise. And he, why is he repeating himself? Because they didn't get it the first time, right? Look, it says the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and, will be, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Ponder this question. And I think this, these verses answer it. Why did Jesus come to earth? If someone asked and said, I heard you're a Christian. Why did Jesus come to earth? What would you say? 
Why did Jesus come to earth? I hope you would say something similar to this, right? In other places it says that um, he will come, Jesus coming to um, die for his people, to save his people from their sins. He even said that when he was born. He came to suffer and die. His whole life was pointed to the end of it. But why? Why must he, why would a man come to suffer and be executed? I'm not going on that trip. You read the description. You read the description of the cruise. Here's all your stops. Here you go to Capernaum, Bethsaida, blah, 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 blah. And then you'll be tortured, executed. I do not want to sign up for that excursion. That's what Jesus came for. Why? Why did he come? Many of you know he came because of your sin. Your sin and your sin and my sin. That's why he came. Because the sin has a death penalty. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, right? And so because I don't want to die for my sins, Jesus didn't want me to die for my sins. He came and died for my sins. So then he takes my sins. That's what he came for. This was the whole reason. But the apostles were not getting it. They did not understand. Jesus came because of his shattered clay pots. Remember, kids? The whole room full of shattered clay pots? Jesus came to die so those pots could be remade. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Remember, Brandon said that, right? With the assurance of forgiveness, that we really are forgiven as far as the East is from the West. Jesus had to die such a terrible death because we are sinners. Okay, so speaking of sin, look at the next story. So then right after Jesus just spoken of how he's gonna suffer and die, they're walking and what are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? Not there. See, the trouble with the, the, the gospels are so honest, right? The great apostles, man, they get humiliated and it's recorded in history for all of us to read for thousands of years. There are some downsides to being an apostle and being in this time. All your embarrassing moments will be captured forever. They're arguing about who is the greatest. Now, we wouldn't do anything like that, would we? Or would we? Have you ever judged someone else? Have you ever judged someone else? About their parenting, I'm a much better parent than they are. About their marriage, my marriage, much better than that. Are we not doing the same thing? I mean, you find something, and if one is weak, you just find something else to compare yourself to others. We are doing the same mistake. It is prideful. It is the same pride they had. The apostles are saying, jockeying for, hey, we're following the Messiah. That probably means that we're pretty important, and I'm more important than you're important. Remember I told you that Thursday morning the men's study talked about pride? You might find that strange. A leadership study, that's a a core value that they need to learn about. It's not being prideful. Look at these verses that Jesus says and it'll make more sense. All right, look there, 35. Okay, so he sat them down. He called the 12 and he said to them, listen, this is really important, this line. If anyone would be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well, that doesn't do much for our pride, does it? Men, if you want to be a leader in your home, in your workplace, or in the church, you must be humble. What did the verse say? Let's read it again. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all 
and servant of all. Did Jesus not show this over and over again? Over and over, he washed their feet. He died for them. He served them. He took care of them. Pride is not our ally. Pride is not our ally. You remember you see how he lifted up a child? The literal translation is infant. So he holds up a kid in front of them. And look what he says there, verse 37. Whoever receives one such child, so this is like a, a Dawson or Brennan or little tiny person, okay? Whoever receives, look at the verse, 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the glory of the Father is in the Son. And he's saying, if you will receive a little child in my name, you're receiving me. You see, what he's, the, the apostles who are arguing about who's the greatest, he says, shift your focus and look at this little baby and give this baby the honor that you think I deserve. Now you tell me that doesn't have incredible implications for the unborn, giving honor to those who are utterly helpless. But take it beyond that. Are there not other people who are helpless? People that do not naturally, we think, deserve honor? How about the elderly in nursing homes? How about those with disabilities? Right, our society, we rank people of who's the greatest. And Jesus is saying, do not think like that. Take this baby and give it honor. Jesus really cares about kids. All right, but then he goes on. There's more, right? Jesus is not done. So then they try to stop the guys who are casting out demons. Now what's going on there? Look at verse 38. We tried to stop them because they were not following us. This is likely believers, but they just aren't following the apostles. This is like exclusivism at its best. This is territorialism. Like, hey, there's other guys and they're stealing our territory. If you're in sales, you don't want anyone stealing your territory, right? That's what they're doing. Jesus sees it and he calls them out. He says, no. It's his pride again, isn't it? Did you know that we are not the only Bible-believing, gospel-centered church in Cane Bay? How should you feel about this? You should celebrate. Were the apostles celebrating that there are other people casting out demons? No. They and their pride were not. Do not be like them. We should celebrate. We're all tempted to be territorial. Do not give in to this form of pride. The kingdom of God is bigger than Hope Community Church. The kingdom of God is bigger than this church. Okay, if you didn't feel convicted yet, turn to the fourth point. Jesus is going to turn up the heat. Look at verse 42. And whoever causes one of these little ones, so he's still talking about little kids, who believes in me to sin is better for him to have a great millstone. So I don't know if you've ever seen a millstone. They're like this big, and they have a hole cut in the center. An animal would, be, would turn this thing to, to, grain, uh, to crush grain. Okay? And so imagine a person, kids imagine, a huge stone like this dropped onto someone's neck like a donut, and they're thrown into the sea. They are not going to tread water, Right? certain death. Jesus has some pretty amazing pictures, doesn't he? Now, who deserves such an execution? One who causes a little one to sin. What could this practically look like? I'll give you one example. How about people that would go into schools and teach young children perverse things about gender and sexuality? Would that lead them to sin? Absolutely. And what does Jesus say that such people deserve to have a millstone put around their neck and thrown into the sea? Now, all of you can heartily agree with that. I doubt many of you are actually involved in that. 
And now some of you might be tempted in those ways in homosexuality. If you are, we love you. Come talk to me. But for those who are promoting that into schools, Jesus has strong words for them. But that really isn't as close to home. Let's try to make it closer. And this is what you have to do when you read the Bible. You can easily come up with examples that are far out there and feel good about yourself. Is there any way that possibly you could lead a child to sin? Is there any way you could do that? Parents, what if you were to yell at your spouse? What if you do that in front of your kids and they're regularly seeing this example? What will your kids do? Well, they will grow up and they will likely follow whose example? Yours. Could you lead a child to sin? Do you show your spouse disrespect openly? Could you lead a child to sin? Do you require obedience from your child? Proverbs says this, 13.24. Wasn't it easier when we're talking about people way out there? Proverbs 13.24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. I did not write this. Jesus did. God did and put it in the Proverbs. Whoever spares his son the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline. If you will not discipline your child when they are disrespectful, you are guilty and a part of their sin. And so he says, what do all of us, and every parent has been guilty of this, if you've been a parent long, we're all guilty of this. We all deserve to have a millstone put around our neck and thrown into the sea. Well, that sounds miserable. The good news is Jesus had a millstone put around his neck and he was thrown in the sea for me and for you, for all your failings as parents. That's good news. He has even stronger words. Look there. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Kids, do you know what this is? This is called hyperbole. There's a big word. You know that word, hyperbole? Hyperbole is exaggerated language, not meant to be taken literally to make a point. What's the point that Jesus is trying to make? It's the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. See, we in our pride, we belittle sin. It's not a big deal. I got this under control. And you know what? I'm actually better than all of my neighbors. But see, God doesn't grade grade on a curve. God is holy. Remember, he is high and lifted up. And we must have an accurate view of our sin. So much so that Jesus says, you're better to lose your hand than to go to hell. But you remember, remember we talked about that the um, uncleanness, remember? And he said, uncleanness comes from where? Your heart, doesn't it, right? So the problem is not hands. A man who lusts after a woman, who looks at her lustily, the problem is not, it's not an eye issue. It's a heart issue, right? The eyes are just obeying the heart. So Jesus knows that. So the issue is not hands and feet and eyes. We know that. But what one of the points is, I mean, in, in a group this big, I guarantee there's someone here who's just playing church. And so please hear me if that's you. Jesus is not joking about hell. He is not joking. He is talking about it with strong language because it's a real place. It's not a place I want any of you to ever go. And so please hear these warnings to take sin seriously. If you, if sin controls you, whether that sin is pornography, whether it's drinking too much, any other substance, whether you're so consumed with your work that it's just eating your life, whatever your sin, take it seriously. And, and there's something to do with it. And we'll get to that in just a second. But it is no joke. It is no joke. 
Oh, one note before I move on. If porn is, if pornography is something you struggle with, I do not have time. This passage is extremely helpful, but I don't have time to explain it. Please come talk to me. I would love to help you just man to man with that issue. So I have to move on, um, but this, that passage has a lot of helpful things to say. But sin is serious, and we should take it seriously. Okay, as we wrap up, look at the pay, bottom of page seven. Um, you see a diagram there. Do you see that? Let me just explain that. You're, you start on the left, you're trucking through time, and then you finally get to the point of conversion. Now, the point of conversion, there's a, a split. You see it split? And so going up is your understanding of the glory of God. If you're in a missional community, you've seen this, right? If you aren't, you might want to visit one. We have a lot of fun in those. All right, this is from the book we're using. And you are learning about God's glory. My prayer is that today you saw Jesus more glorious, right? He's high and lifted up. He's transfigured on the mountain. But then you see that bottom line of our sinfulness. The reality is you are far more prideful than you realize. That's true of me too. And as you grow as a Christian, that gap gets bigger, and bigger and bigger. And so I don't want you to be depressed when you leave today of like, wow, I deserve to have a millstone around my neck. This stinks. No, the point is this. If you will accurately see yourself and you'll accurately see God, what's the big thing between those? The cross. And as you grow as a Christian, you should understand yourself as Paul finally gets the point of says, I'm the least of all the, all the sinners. I'm the worst of sinners, right? Is what he says. The cross bridges that gap and your understanding of what Jesus died for should grow as you grow as a Christian. Be encouraged. Jesus died for every failure you've ever had. Everything you've done with your hands that you never should have done. Everything you did with your feet, everything you did with your eyes that you never should have done. Jesus died for. And so I leave you with these words from John 6, 33. Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Some of you need to come for the first time, even though you've been in church for a long time. Some of you need to come for the hundredth time. That You would come to Jesus over and over again. Say, I own it. I have unbelief. I have sin. But help me with my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, we all come to you. Uh, We have more pride than we understand. And so, Lord, I pray that today our view of ourselves would be just a hair more accurate and our view of you would be lifted up even higher. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for all of my sins. I have so many more than I realized when I was 20. And I know there's more to come. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. May they go from this place with an accurate view of themselves and a willingness to humble themselves as that man did. Lord, humble us all that we may have joy for there's no joy in pride. Lord, I pray joy for my brothers and sisters that they would find you not as a scolding father, but rather the father of the prodigal son who embraces the son who owns and acknowledges his, his brokenness. May we, uh, when we own our brokenness and feel your embrace, that you love us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.